Joshua chapter 10, in verse 15, it says, Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. But these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in a cave at Makedah. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makedah. So Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. And do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. Do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. Then it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they had finished that those who escaped entered fortified cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makedah in peace. No one moved his tongue against the children of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so, and brought out those five kings to him from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Ebron, the king of Yarmut or Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Elon or Eglon. In verse 24 it says, So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging on the trees until evening. So it was at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded and they took them down from the trees, cast them into the cave where they had been hidden, and laid large stones against the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. On that day, Joshua took Makedah and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them, all the people who were in it. He let none remain. He also did to the king of Makedah, as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Makedah, and all Israel with him, to Libna, and they fought against Libna. And the Lord also delivered it and its king into the hand of Israel. He struck it with all the people who were in it and the edge of the sword. He let none remain in it, but did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Libna and all Israel with him to Lachish, and they encamped against it and fought against it. And the Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel and took it on the second day and struck it with all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done to Libna. Then Oram, the king of Hetzer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left him none remaining. From Lachish, Joshua passed to Eglon and all Israel with him, and they encamped against it and fought against it. Then they took 
it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword, all the people who were in it. He utterly destroyed it that day according to all that he had done to Lachish. So Joshua went from Eglon and all Israel with him to Ebron and they fought against it. And they took it and struck it with the edge of the sword, its king, in all its cities, and all the people who were in it. He left none remaining, according to all that he had done to Eglon, but utterly destroyed it, and all the people who were in it. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him to Debir, and they fought against it, and he took it with the king in all of its cities. They struck them with the edge of the sword, and utterly destroyed all the people who were in it. He left none remaining, as he had done to Ebron, so he did to Debir, and its king, as he had done also to Libna and its king. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country in the south, and the lowland and the wilderness slopes, and all their kings, he left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed, as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea, as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. All these kings and their land Joshua took at one time. Because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Remember in the book of Joshua, the children of Israel called to occupy the land. Remember we as Christians are called to occupy Christ. The Christian life isn't a playground. It is a battleground. The spiritual provision that we're given aren't toys to play with. And not simply tools to work with, but weapons to fight with. In Joshua, we received an invitation to enter the land and then conquer the land. And then later, throughout the rest of the book of Joshua, we're going to be called to possess the land. But again, there is this reoccurring theme. It's the reoccurring theme of victory over enemies. What makes victory possible? We've already learned that it's prayer. Remember, in the beginning of the chapter, Joshua prayed for more time. He needed a miracle in order to defeat his enemy. Remember, there was the presence of God. Remember, there was the promise of God. But the soul that would experience victory has to be willing to submit to God and obey God. We enter the battle. We engage in the fight. We're to become seasoned soldiers of King Jesus. We battle, again, not against flesh and blood. There's a series of seven battles that are outlined, and they may not mean a whole lot to you as we go from the geography of one place to another. But in a moment, it's going to begin 
to make sense as you think about the own, the, our own battles. Now remember, because we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. In Ephesians, Paul tells the believer to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, in verse 10, put on the whole armor that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. But we begin to understand that there are enemies and battles that we have to fight continually. For the Christian, it's the devil. It's the world. It's our flesh. We contend with our flesh. And again, this, this, the secret of the three great enemies, Satan and the invisible forces of darkness... We're also given equipment to fight Satan. We are to contend with the flesh. But the secret of victory over the flesh is to discover that you've been crucified with Christ. That you can put to death the deeds of the flesh in the body. We identify with Christ. We experience the power of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. We contend with the world. And over and over again, I've told you that these three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, we also are given three great champions. The Father has overcome the world. Jesus has overcome Satan. The Spirit Spirit of God has been given as a provision in order so that we can deal with the problems of the flesh. But we also have to contend with this world. And the secret of victory over the world is separation from sin and then becoming separated to the Father. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through 18, Paul pleads with the Corinthians to be separated from evil, to allow God to be your heavenly Father. He says, don't be unequally yoked. What fellowship has darkness with light? What fellowship has Christ with Belial? What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? Then Paul quotes Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 32. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch what is unclean and I will receive you. And then it says, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters. All of this to say, since we're crucified with Christ, the secret of victory over self is the replacement of self with Christ. We're given the equipment in the Lord, the secret of victory over Satan, the separated from sin with the Father. We walk in the Spirit, but these aren't our only enemies. We have our tongue to contend with. We have the ignorant and foolish people around us to contend with. We have our failure to, that we contend with. And so as you're looking at these things, you look at the battle one after the other, after the other, after the other. And you ask the question, well, what does this have to do with me? It has everything to do with you. Because as soon as you face one battle, then you face another battle. And then you face another battle. Christ is the secret of victory over failure in the Christian life. We battle with personal failure. We battle with our tongue. We battle with ignorance. We battle with the world. We battle with our flesh. So in this chapter, there are seven recorded battles. 
The first battle, again, is against the the enemies of Gibeon. We saw that in verses 1 through 14. The second is the battle at Machedon, verses 15 through 28. The battle against Libna in verses 29 and 30. The battle against Lachish in verses 31 and 33. The battle against, and in the Hebrew it's pronounced Elon. In your Bible it might be translated Eglon, but the G is in the Hebrew, silent. The battle against Ebron in verses 36 and 37. The battle against Debir. So when we look at the battle against Machedah, you'll note in verse 15, it says, then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. This is after the amazing miracle that has taken place. After prayer, they returned to the camp. Verses 15 And 43 in your chapter are identical. And this isn't an accident. It isn't needless repetition. I believe the reason why the writer and the Holy Spirit allowed both verse 15 and 43 to be identical is because he's setting apart this particular section and drawing attention to it in what's theologians called a pericope. A pericope is a segment. It is a segment that was meant to be dealt with on its own. In verse 16 it says, But these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in the cave at Machedah. And it was told, Joshua saying, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Machedah. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men to guard it. And do not stay there yourself, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. Do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. Joshua orders these kings who have fled into the cave in order to escape capture. He says, rather than deal with them now, we're going to roll stones in front of them. We're not going to flush them out. We're not going to take the time to deal with them at this point. We are going to pursue the battle until we've experienced complete victory. And when I was reading this, I was thinking about a future king who would be put in a future cave and a stone would be placed in front of that cave. But that king wouldn't be held inside of that cave. And the stone would be rolled away. But these kings are going to be captured. And remember, a king becomes a type and a picture of a representation in the Bible. Let me put it a different way. In the Bible, leadership is always representative. Let me help you understand that. In the ancient world, the king's responsibility was to represent the people to God and God to the people. So there's two kinds of kings. Faithful kings who faithfully represent God and unfaithful kings who unfaithfully represent God. So kings in this context become a type and a picture of the controlling authority over the enemy of God. Remember what all of these enemies have in common. All of them have in common a reluctance and a rebellion against God's true plan and true purpose. God's plan is to occupy the land. God's plan is to give it to the children of Israel. And they're resisting God's plan. And they're in rebellion against God. 
You have to understand that because remember all of the things that I've just talked about that the Christian has to contend with. The world, the flesh, the devil, our tongue, misguided information from other people in the world. The battles that you have to fight against evil. All of them are enemies to keep you from occupying Christ. So Joshua orders them to seal the cave, pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. In other words, even when it looks like your enemies are running for their lives, continue the fight. Prevent the enemy from getting a strategic advantage by returning to their fortified cities. Pursue them, deal with them, don't let them go. Trust the Lord. And it becomes a type and a picture of what we have to do with our enemies. Whether it's the world, the flesh, or the devil. Whether it's our own unruly tongue. Whether it's the enemies of darkness. It says in verse 20, Then it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they had finished that those who escaped entered the fortified cities. So it would appear that some of them managed to escape and then reinforce their position. And so you're entering into the fight and some of your enemies escape. Well, guess what? Welcome to the real world. Welcome to the world of confrontation and battle. And so it says, and all the people returned to the camp, to Joshua at Makedah in peace. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Think about what's happening throughout. There's a miracle that's taking place at the, at the beginning of the chapter. There's a series of battles that are unfolding right before your eyes. Now, all of a sudden, everyone around them realizes Joshua means business. And the children of Israel mean business. They are committed to fulfilling the plan of God. Remember what we've talked about, victory. You see, in order for you to have victory in your life as a Christian, in your walk as a Christian, you have to begin to take Christianity seriously. And by Christianity, I'm not talking about religion, and I'm not simply talking about reading your Bible, and I'm not simply talking about praying, and I'm not simply talking about going to church, although I repeatedly tell you, I want you to read your Bible, I want you to pray, and I want you to go to church, but it's all that go, comes with that, a deep and abiding realization that what the Bible says about God is true. What the Bible says about you is true. What the Bible says about the condition of the world is true. By the way, Makedah in the Hebrew means the place of the shepherds. In other words, wherever this place is, and did you show the map already, James, of the, of, you see Gilgal and Gibeon and Makedah. Makedah is in a valley and it is a place, if you will, in the ancient world where people would bring their sheep to feed. The sweeping defeat means that Israel is going to be a force to be reckoned with and feared. And, and again, I'm going to suggest to you that he brings them to this place and that he's bringing them to the place of the shepherd. And he's going to defeat it. Part of what I want you to also understand that as he begins to occupy these territories, 
Gibeon, Machida, Libna, Lachish, Eglon, Ebron, Debir. This is going to be the heart of the Jewish nation. The, the events that are going to unfold in these places are going to be extremely significant. The reason why all of this becomes important to you as a type and a picture as a Christian is that when you begin to experience the life of victory, grace and mercy, where you are experiencing more victory than you are defeat, then all of a sudden the unfolding plans and purposes of God become manifest in your life. God's enemies will be overthrown and defeated. Now, I want you to think about this just for a moment. Israel and Joshua are starting to be feared. And oddly enough, there will come a time when Jesus and the Jesus followers, that the people in the world will be terrified of you. In, in a very real sense, remember, Satan trembles. He's been defeated. We talk about the weakest saint on his or her knees is stronger than the powers of hell. You pray and you begin to understand that God has a plan and a purpose. Now, again, not in the sense that we make life miserable or unbearable or we act cruelly towards the unbeliever. If you just simply do what God has called you to do, you're going to, be, you're going to make life miserable for them. I'm praying for you. Will you please be quiet? Will you stop talking about Jesus? Will you stop talking Bible talk? Will you stop... Will you get that smile off your face? I was thinking about that in the, in the recent elections of Teddy Roosevelt and um, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Most of you are way, way, way too young to remember Teddy and Franklin Roosevelt. But what the Roosevelt cousins had in common is they always had this great big smile on their face. They were populists. And our president seems to always have a scowl on his face. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not making a political judgment. I'm making a, an observation about the way a person's face looks. And when your life is filled with joy and peace and victory, there's a sort of a radiating righteousness that begins to emerge from your faith. Our Savior is the King and Judge. We're to be courageous in our faith, uncompromising in our testimony, holy in our lives. Now, you, you see, that's what becomes terrifying to Satan and to this world when you're courageous, uncompromising, and holy in your worship and praise, when you experience the awe and the reverence and the presence of God, then all of a sudden things start to change. In his book, Victorious Christian Living, Alan Redpath, who I had the great pleasure of meeting Early on in my Christian life, he spoke at a, at a Calvary Chapel pastor's conference. He was asked one of the most amazing questions I've ever heard asked by a speaker. Someone had the, 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 the courage to ask him, how do you tell a spiritual person or, or what 
What, what's the evidence of a person who's spiritual? And I'll never forget Redpath's statement. He said, wet eyes and bent knees. He writes, the Christian man is he who is righteous in his conduct, uncompromising in his principles, passionate in his devotion to, to his Savior, sacrificial in his service, and transparent in his life. He has no life behind the scenes to which he retreats to indulge his appetite for things that he would be ashamed to do in the company of Christian people. This is Redpath's way of saying he's a real Christian. He's not a pretend one. He isn't just a person who shows up at church with a happy face. He's a real, she's a real Christian in their very real life. He says, quote, his life will bear the closest scrutiny of his strongest critics from which he will come out unscathed, a holy man of God, continually. This is one of the things about this chapter that's so important. There is victory and then another victory and repeated victory, but it is a hard fought battle. In verse 22, it says, Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so and brought out those five kings to him from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Ebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who were with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near, and they put their feet on the necks, on the necks of, the, of these conquered victims. By the way, in the ancient world, there are monuments to this day. There are, there's things called steles and stones and monuments that show pictures of kings subjugating other kings. It even appears on coins of the ancient world where a person is taken captive and then they're pictured with, their, with, the, with the feet of the victor on the necks of the conquered enemy. So it became a symbol of complete subjugation by a defeated enemy. And see, this becomes an important point in the passage. It is symbolism, but it's symbolism that is supposed to capture your imagination. So much of your life, so much of my life is sometimes spent in this constant harassment. But can you imagine when you finally experience victory in your walk as a Christian? You see, part of the point of what Joshua is doing with the captains of the army is also presenting this powerful warning to future enemies. And so now all of a sudden, we think of all of the battles we have to fight with Satan, with the world, with our flesh, with our tongue, with, with misguided people. And we understand that there's a constant, ongoing battle that we have to face, but that there is a provision that's been made for us. And... Victory. It says in verse 25, Then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. For thus the Lord will do to all of your enemies against whom you fight. Do you know what Joshua is actually doing? 
For those of you who've been following along in the passage and you've been with us since Joshua chapter 1, these are the words that God spoke to Joshua. And now he speaks them to the people who are with him, who are engaged in the battle. You might think, you're a preacher. You're a Bible teacher. It's your job to quote the Bible. It may be my job to quote the Bible, but I have a far more important job. It isn't to just simply quote the words of the scripture. It's to remind you that the word of God is given as a provision for you. That these are promises for you. That you can embrace and become meaningful for your life. It says, and afterward Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging on the trees till evening. Again, Joshua repeats what has been given to him. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Be strong. Endure. The Lord is going to conquer. The Lord is going to place your enemies into your hand. There will be times in your life where it looks like the enemy has got the upper hand. You'll remember that even in the life of Jesus, for the person who's unaware of God's plans and purposes, it looks like the betrayal and his arrest and the failure to provide justice for him and his mock trial and his crucifixion, that these were tragic and horrible mistakes. But we already know, those of us who are Christians, that it's not a tragic, accidental horror. That God has a plan and a purpose that he's going to bring Jesus back to life. It would appear that Joshua himself kills these enemies. I find that interesting from a typological standpoint. Because it's Jesus who overcomes your enemies. Their general, Joshua. Our general, Jesus. Jesus is the one who's overcome Satan. The Bible says you submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee it's absolutely, positively a horrible idea for any of you to ever to try to go toe-to-toe with the devil. There are so many people who mistakenly, wrong and wrongly rail against Satan or, or yell at him or scream at him. The Bible, nowhere in the, nowhere in the Bible are you invited to talk to Satan. When Michael, the archangel, it says, confronted Satan, he didn't say that he brought a railing accusation against him, but rather in the book of James it says, he said to him, the Lord rebuke you. So, Joshua, it would appear, hangs them either from a tree or from a stake. The Hebrew is a little less clear here. But some scholars have suggested that they don't just simply take a rope and hang them from a pole or take them on a tree and hang them from a tree. There's some scholars who suggest that they're impaled on these stakes. Now, again, you might be thinking, wow, this looks like a little overkill. You know, you kill them and then you impale them or you hang them from a tree. Isn't this like going a little bit overboard? But the reoccurring theme in the Bible is to deal dramatically 
ruthlessly with sin. You give it no quarter. You provide no luxuries for it. In verse 27, so it says, When the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees, cast them into the cave where they had been hidden, and laid large stones against the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. In other words, the defeat of the enemies will once again serve as a memorial to the children of Israel of God's commitment to overcoming the enemy. And that's God's commitment to you, to overcome the enemy. So once again, Joshua establishes this memorial of victory along the way. But I'm going to suggest to you that it is a memorial of victory, but it also is a memorial of warning to those who reject God, who reject God's plan, who reject God's people, who reject God's purpose. So again, we see this reoccurring theme in the Bible that causes so many people so much consternation and grief. You mean Jesus is going to come back? Yes. You mean he's going to come back as judge? Yes. You, you see the Bible pictures Jesus coming like Joshua, not with a staff, for sheep, but with a sword against his enemies to overcome the enemy. It says, on that day, Joshua took Makedah, the place of the shepherd, struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them, all the people who were in it. He let none remain. He also did to the king of Makedah as he had done to the king of Jericho. So there, here's this reoccurring theme. The reoccurring theme is, What's the source? Who has power and control over the thing that you're struggling with? You have to deal with it. You have to address it and then you have to kill it so that it has no future for you. Again, once again, Joshua deals decisively with his enemies. All leadership in the Bible is based on covenant. It's based on a relationship. Remember what Joshua's role as the leader of the children of Israel. He represents God to the people and the people he brings to the Lord. That's what your pastor is supposed to do too. Your pastor is supposed to remind you that everything that the Bible says about God is true. About his nature, about his character, about his love about his self-existence, about his commitment to his promises, about the power of his presence. And then it's also my job to bring you to him in sorrow, in pain, in difficulty, in tragedy, in setback. And so our leader, Jesus, intercedes for us and represents God to us. And so, in the ancient world, since the king represented the people, the tragedy is always what happens when the king misrepresents the people, opposes God, rebels against God, invites the people to dishonor and disobey God. 
The Bible says that we are to resist evil. We're to resist violence and child abuse and brutality and adultery and immorality and divorce. We're to remain loyal to the Lord. We're to endure against our enemies. We aren't to celebrate evil. We're to celebrate righteousness. We're to combat and struggle and fight against evil. We're to stay the course and persevere, remain steadfast, not give up until we experience victory. And that's what Joshua is modeling. He executes the king so that he no longer has dominion, but also to provide a warning against the future enemies. So we've got the battle of Libna in verses 29 through 30. It says, then Joshua passes from Makedah and all Israel with him to Libna and they fought against Libna and the Lord also delivered it and its king into the hand of Israel. You'll note this reoccurring theme in all of these battles. The Lord delivered them into the hand. The Lord delivered them into their hands. The Lord delivered them into the hands. You see, there's this tension, this powerful tension between a real God really at work, but real people in humility and submission cooperating with God. The Lord delivered it and its king into the hand, and then he struck it and all the people who were with him. He let none remain. He did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Libna, by the way, means white. It also can mean the storax tree. It would later be given to the tribe of Judah. In the future, it would be a place that would be a sanctuary city, if you will, for the Levites, we discover in Joshua chapter 21, verse 13. So again, as you're occupying these territories that were formerly occupied by the enemies of God, it becomes a type and a picture of our enemies in our life where Maybe you used to be controlled by something in your mind or something in your heart or something in your life. And then all of a sudden, God allows you to have victory in this particular area. And then God is going to set aside what Satan used to use to humiliate you in order to glorify God. And so... We have the battle against Lachish. It says, Then Joshua passed from Libna and all Israel with him to Lachish, and they encamped against it. And once again they fought against it. And the Lord delivers Lachish into the hand of Israel, who took it on the second day and struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done to Libna. Then Oram, the king of Getzer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none of them remaining. And so the picture is as the enemies are becoming overwhelmed and overcome, other kinds of enemies join with that enemy to fight against Joshua and the children of Israel. It becomes a type and a picture that once you start on this road to victory, there's going to be a reoccurring theme of opposition. Some of you thought, wait a minute, when I became a Christian, I thought all opposition was going to end. I received Christ as my savior. I'm going to heaven instead of hell. But you mean there are challenges, battles, difficulties. The answer is yes. By the way, Lakish in the original language 
It means obstinate. Lachish. Aren't there some enemies that seem obstinate, reoccurring, coming back over and over and over again? By the way, Lachish was located in the lowlands. It would also be given to the tribe of Judah. It was an ancient city. This ancient city is mentioned in the ancient records of Egypt and Assyria and Babylonia. So this is a town with deep roots and deep history. Just like there are things in your life with deep roots and deep history. That for some of you, it's always been a part of your life. Or was a part of your family's life and their family's life. And now it's come and you enter into the struggle. And so the battle against Elon or Eglon from Lachish, Joshua passes to Eglon and all Israel with him and they encamped against it and fought against it. They took it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. All the people who were in it utterly destroyed that day according to all that had been done in Lachish. Again, Elon may mean, depending on if you pronounce it, in a particular way, but the Hebrew word seems to mean a great tree, but it also can mean the tree of the small G-O-D. In other words, it's, it's this idea of an animated place, a holy place, a sacred grove, a, a almost like a pagan place where people would go and engage in their pagan activities. And for some of us, we battle against ancient religions. We grew up in a religious tradition that didn't really honor God or believe God or love God. But it was a religious tradition nonetheless. And then there's the battle against Ebron. Joshua went up from Eglon, all Israel with him, to Ebron, and they fought against it. The name Hebron means an association or a league. This is the place, by the way, if you put the map back up again, I don't know if anybody's over there. Is anybody back there? Yeah, put, you see where it says Gilgal, Gibeon, and Machedah, and you see the place called Ebron? Ebron in the ancient world, for those of you, if you go back from the time of Joshua, hundreds of years earlier, Hebron is the place where Abraham went after he separated from his nephew Lot. Back in those days, in the Abrahamic days, it was called Mamre. This is the place where God visits Abraham. This is the place where, Abraham, where Sarah learns that she's with child by Isaac. So Hebron is going to be a, a place um, of great significance. And again, this is the place also where Abraham is buried and Isaac is buried and Jacob is buried and Joseph is buried. And the children of Israel are going to take it back as their own. It says, and they took it and struck it with the edge of the sword, its king, its cities, all the people around it. He left none remaining according to all that had been done to Eglon that utterly destroyed it and the people who were with it. And then the battle against Debir, verses 38 and 39. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to Debir and they fought against it. Debir means the back or the behind. In common Hebrew, it came to mean the word that was used that when you are enter a house 
and then you enter the house and you go to the middle of the house and then you go to the back of the house. And so this word, debir, also became the word that the Hebrew children would use to describe the holy of holies in the temple. It was at the rear or the back of the temple. And so... Again, in verse 39, it says, And he took it, and its king and all of its cities, they struck it with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed all the people who were in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Hebron. So he did to Debir and its king as he had done to Libna and its king. So here's the idea. Battle. Another battle. Another battle. Another battle. And by the way, if you've ever been in a fight... And it feels like a fight for your life, a fight for your sanity, a fight that never seems to go away. And you pray and you go, Lord, is this this ever going to end? Is this ever going to be over with? We, we, We see a type and a picture again, that the life of the lover of God is one of engagement. Do you know what all of these battles have in common? I'm going to tell you a couple of things. Number one, Joshua takes the initiative to attack it. Joshua takes the initiative to attack. It's God who delivers the enemies. Joshua takes the city's king, the source of strength and control and legitimacy. The reason why all of this becomes important to you is Jesus is the one who's in charge of the battle. He's going to take the initiative. Joshua takes the initiative. And also, Joshua struck the king with the sword. In other words, not only does he take the initiative, but once he's taken the initiative, once he says, I am going to obey God in what it is that I'm doing, this is a, a time of total obedience. So what about our battles? What about our battle with self? Our battle with Satan? Our battle with the world? Our battle with our flesh? Our battle with our tongue? Our battle with ignorant and foolish people? Our battle against personal failures? We ask Jesus to take the initiative. We respond in prayer and dependence and obedience. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus in us. Jesus with us. We're given spiritual equipment to wage spiritual war. We're separated from sin. We separate to the Father. We walk in the Spirit. Our speech is seasoned with salt and grace. We engage in good works to shut the mouths of our critics. We don't grow weary in well-doing. We allow Jesus to live in us and then through us as the secret to overcoming personal failure and see we see finally at the end of the chapter the breadth and scope of the victory so Joshua conquered all the land the mountain country the south the lowland 
and the wilderness slopes and all of their kings. He left nothing remaining. He utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea, as far as Gaza, all of the country of Goshen, as far as Gibeon, all these kings and their land Joshua took at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought. In other words, there is victory when God is in control and a huge amount of the promised land is secured. This is what this is. It's the breadth and the scope of the victory. It includes the highlands, which is the hill country, the southlands, which is the modern Negev, the foothills, which is called the Shephelah or the lowlands, and the ascents. And he leaves no survivors. Can you put the map back up? The mountain, you see where the Dead Sea is? If you go a little bit to the left, the mount, there's a mountain range that goes right through Israel in the heartland. There's a, the thing that's called the Shephelah is the lowlands. And so again, he secures the heart of this place. And they are going to entrench themselves in this place. And then it says, then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. I know you keep wanting to put the map away. But then he, he goes, you see, they go all the way back up to Gilgal. Now, again, I want you to just to think about it. How exhausted you are hearing me teach this. Gino has gone battle after battle. I'm exhausted just listening to me. Can you imagine how it was to actually engage in the battle itself? And so you can imagine how exhausting it must be for people who are under constant pain, constant pressure, a constant battle. They're going to return to Gilgal for a little rest and a little relaxation. And if you've ever been in a hard fight and there's just a respite, there's a time to relax and recuperate. The northern borders remain occupied and unsecured. And they're going to have to go there. And they're going to have to secure it. You know, when I was preparing this, I was thinking about a story that I read about Mark Twain and his daughter. Um, I've been reading a, a book about the travels of Mark Twain through the Holy Land and through Anatolia or Turkey. And then he makes his way to Europe. And it talks about the daughter. Um, Twain's writings had basically made him very, very famous in Europe. And he, the rich and the famous wanted to hang out with Mark Twain. And in several cities, there were artists and scientists who met with Twain. And towards the end of the journey, the daughter said to her, to her dad, Papa, you know everybody. But God, what an interesting statement. Papa, you know everybody, but God, don't you? The daughter was aware that here's Mark Twain and all of his brilliance and all of his, his character and fame and relationships and wit and humor. But there was something missing in his life. He didn't know God. In the book of Daniel, we read in Daniel eleven thirty two. The people who know their God will display 
strength and take action. Joshua knows the Lord. Daniel knew the Lord. The people who know their God will take strength and then they'll take action. In the end, only those who really know and trust the Lord will experience victory. Nothing is more frustrating than for a person who's not really a Christian to want to live like a Christian and have victory like a Christian, but they don't really know God. They don't really know Jesus. Guess what? You'll never experience victory unless you have Joshua commanding the battle that's called your life. By Joshua, I mean our Jesus. We would do well to remember that, again, as we've looked at the battles, has Jericho been an amazing victory? Has A.E. been a crushing defeat? Do you know what that means? That one defeat does not a life make. Sometimes we experience setbacks, don't we? Trials and difficulties. But we can't allow one defeat to determine our entire future. There's more battles that have to be fought. There's a war that has to be waged. The loss of one battle in the Christian life does not mean permanent defeat. And so, we pray. So, we obey. What happens if we don't pray? What happens if we disobey? Almost certainly, we're guaranteed a setback. So prayer isn't just simply a call to a religious exercise. It's an invitation to trust the Lord, depend upon the Lord, rely upon the Lord. Obedience isn't something that you have to do in order to be saved. It's something that you do because you are saved. And so, when next we meet, Joshua chapter 11. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we look at this list of battles. And again, Lord, we're reminded of our own battles with our flesh against Satan. Against the world. With our mouth. With mean people with evil. Lord, there's a constant parade of battle that we would face. But again, Lord, we remember, we remember, we remember. The Christian life isn't a playground. It's a battleground. And Lord, the spiritual disciplines and the resources that you've given to us the word of God, prayer, friendship, fellowship, support, the promises, the presence of God. These aren't toys. 
or simply tools, but weapons in order to wage war against an enemy who wants desperately to make sure that we experience defeat instead of victory. And so, Lord, again, I pray, I pray, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice that they would take the battle seriously and that they would fight it with grace and mercy and with Jesus as the commander of the army of the Lord of hosts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.